Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundations for most of the issues that we discuss through the various episodes. Our episode today is a little different from past episodes. In light of the recent conflict in Gaza and debates in the media and the public discourse about how to understand the legal issues raised in that conflict, we decided to have a special episode dedicated to those questions. And we have a panel of experts in the laws of war who have thought deeply about these issues and written about some of them recently. To begin with our panel, first we have Yanina Dill, a professor of US foreign policy at Oxford University and co-director of the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law, and Armed Conflict. She's the author of, among other books and articles, the book, Legitimate Targets, International Law, Social Construction, and US Bombing. Next, we have Adil Haq, a professor of law at Rutgers Law School in the United States and has been on the podcast before. He's the author of the book, Law and Morality and War, and recently wrote a blog essay on the strike on the Al Jala Tower in Gaza that was the subject of considerable debate. And finally, we have Aurel Sari, a professor of international law at Exeter University in the United Kingdom and director of the Exeter Center for International Law. He's the author of, among many other articles, Hybrid Law, Complex Battle Spaces, What's the Use of Law of War Manuals? And he too published a blog essay on the strike on the Al Jala Tower, which was the subject of much debate. And as you will hear, Aurel and Adil disagree on some aspects of the analysis. I won't say too much more about the episode here by the way of introduction, other than to say that we try to cover a great deal. We begin with trying to put the analysis into context, addressing some of the criticism that technical legal analysis can help to obscure the ethical and moral issues and even facilitate injustice. We then turn to look at the broader issues regarding the justifications for Israeli use of force. Is it self-defense? If not, what else can justify it? Either way, is the use of force consistent with the limiting principles that govern it? We then go down the rabbit hole of quite technical discussion of some of the IHL issues, that is, the law that governs the conduct of hostilities. And we do use the strike on the Al Jala Tower as the lens through which to examine issues of distinction, proportionality, precautions in attack, the role of warnings. And we even discuss the extent to which there are, or may be, obligations to disclose evidence that supports the claims of lawfulness. Before getting started, I should perhaps comment on why the focus is on Israel's conduct and Israel's use of force. This comes out in the discussion, but it bears perhaps some emphasis at the outset. While there may be a debate about the justification of Palestinian use of force in pursuit of their self-determination, there is no question that the firing of rockets either to target civilian populations or to fire them indiscriminately with disregard for civilian populations is unlawful under IHL. Hamas is a non-state actor and it does not credibly make any claims to be acting lawfully. Israel, on the other hand, is a democracy that espouses a commitment to the rule of law and has made specific commitments to the relevant treaty regimes in particular. And it does make claims that its armed forces are acting lawfully. Moreover, how its conduct and claims are understood may even operate to influence the development of international law in these areas. And so it is natural that its claims and its conduct be the subject of such scrutiny and debate. And as you will hear, the panel do not agree on all the issues, and I'm sure 
we could have some other voices represented here that might have disagreed even more. The idea here was not to represent all possible perspectives, but to provide an intelligent and searching analysis of the issues. And whether you agree with them or not, I think everyone will find that our guests today do provide a rich, learned, and highly sophisticated analysis. So with that, let's get to the conversation. Well, Yanina, Aurel, Adil, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. And, and particularly thank you for doing this on such short notice, but obviously uh, really pressing issues. Adil, I should really say to you, welcome back to the podcast. Yanina, Aurel, uh, I really do hope that I can entice you back to be on the podcast again to talk about your work. But of course, this is sort of a unique and special episode of the podcast in which we're going to have a panel discussion of the most recent uh, conflict in Gaza. And unfortunately, there are indeed so many legal issues raised by the conflict from the use at Bellum issues to IHL to human rights. But I thought before we get into the details and the technical aspects of those issues, we could talk a little bit about the sort of big picture of the meta issues. A few blog posts uh, in the last week have suggested that the focus on the technical legal analysis, whether it's IHL or USAD Bellum, particularly on the legality of, of this or that strike, can both obscure the larger injustices and even facilitate and legitimate that which may look patently immoral to the outsider. And in a related point, perhaps uh, the flip side of that argument is that there's a risk that if lawyers are consistently concluding that this or that strike is legal when it patently looks immoral and unjust to the non-expert, that the law itself starts to lose its legitimacy and normative force. So Yanina, perhaps uh, we can look to you to lead off the discussion of these sort of meta issues. Yeah, thank you so much, Craig. I think this looks like a really difficult issue, but actually I think there's a way out. And the way out is that we need to hold two truths simultaneously in our mind that seem contradictory about the law, right? The first truth is IHL is vital for the protection of civilians. And to dismiss it as technical, academic, cynical is morally costly and dangerous. The second truth is that legality as a standard for right and wrong and legal argument as a means of contestation is really morally insufficient, right? Legality guarantees neither that conduct is morally justified nor that it is perceived in any way as legitimate by the relevant populations. Why are both of those things true? Well, they're true because law, IHL, fails to prohibit certain things that are morally unjustified. Yet without law, things would be much, much worse. Why? Because war is volitionally and epistemically really, really tricky. By that, I mean it is genuinely difficult to determine what is morally right often. And the people in the midst of war are the least well-placed to determine what is morally right. This is why we need law, right? And why law can't always properly track morality. But basically what it means is IHL is a vital guide for action, but it is nothing more than a minimum standard. So in my empirical research, I found that this is actually in some ways how law works, right? If we study the attitudes of how people perceive violence and war, when violence is legal, this doesn't at all mean that it is perceived as legitimate or justified, right? But when it is illegal or when it pushes the boundary of law, you can almost be certain that relevant populations think of it as less legitimate, as less likely to be justified. So, of course, we need to have conversations about the precise boundaries of military objectives, of what does and doesn't count in the proportionality calculus. But we should never have only those conversations. We should never be satisfied with those conversations alone. And the belligerent should never be satisfied that after arduous Twitter and blog battles, 
legal scholars think that probably they didn't commit a war crime, right? If you push the boundaries of IHL that much, you can almost be certain that your conduct is not morally justified and that it won't be perceived as legitimate by relevant populations. So I think the bottom line is here that we need to understand IHL is both morally vital and morally really insufficient and inadequate. It can be both of those things at the same time. And then there's really no tension between the notion that we have to have really nuanced professional legal arguments, but we shouldn't go into the rabbit hole of thinking that's it, right? It can never the be and end all of a normative conversation about what a belligerent should do and whether they met the mark. Interesting. But there is, of course, the risk that the focus on law sort of crowds out the discussion of morality. But Adil, you have, of course, written a book on the relationship between morality and IHL. What are your thoughts on that? So I agree with everything that Yanina just said. I think the risks are real, but they can be addressed if we're explicit about them, if we address them directly. So first, there's the risk that by focusing on law, we'll distract from more important issues of morality, including political morality. People may think that if lawyers are disagreeing about the legality of an action, then the action must be morally controversial, that reasonable people could disagree about its ethical status, even though the lawyers are actually not having a normative debate. They're just having a technical legal debate about the interpretation of a treaty or something else. There's a, another risk that by focusing on IHL and particularly the rules governing the conduct of hostilities, we take attention away from other legal issues of self-determination, occupation, annexation, displacement that are over the long term worthy of just as much attention even when the fighting stops. And finally, there's the risk that by focusing on one naughty question of legal interpretation, we will take attention away from more important IHL rules that also apply and are actually more significant. So those are all very real risks. I think the best way to address them uh, is basically how Orel did in his post, by being very open and explicit about them, addressing them up front. So I'll let Orel speak for himself, but what I really admired about his post is that he opens by directly addressing the relationship between law and morality, saying explicitly the fact that an action doesn't violate IHL does not mean it's morally justified, and then ending his post by turning from this more controversial question about military objectives to, in many ways, more significant issues about proportionality and precautions as a way to ensure that people don't come away from his post thinking that because there's this one controversial issue we don't know anything about the legality of these airstrikes. We actually know a lot. There are a lot of rules that we have a very good grip on that in the end may be more significant. Uh, so that's something I really admired about his post. Speaking for myself, I think the challenge often in writing uh, essays for blogs is simply length. You know, it, It's very hard to both perform a legal analysis that one feels good about and also address these broader contextual issues. That's a challenge for that format. But in principle, I think by explicitly addressing these issues, we can avoid a lot of those risks. Right, right. And Aurel, you actually, as Adil just said, set it up with this moral question at the outset, but then do, as you yourself say, go down the rabbit hole, a, a term that has now got some cachet in the blogosphere. Uh, and you certainly do go into, down the rabbit hole of getting into the very granular analysis of one particular issue. 
but acknowledging that there is this risk. So maybe I'll turn it to you to, for the last word on the, the meta issues. Yes, thank you very much. I, I completely agree with what Janina has said and, and also what Adil just mentioned. To my mind, um, we, we have to be careful not to, to allow the IHL discussion to crowd out other issues, um, but that is a risk I agree that we, we can and we have to manage. But for me personally, I think it is important for us to, to reflect on, on some of the IHL questions and also to, to look, look into them in some detail to go down that particular rabbit hole. My main reason for that is, of course, there is a lively discussion about whether, to what extent, Israel has complied with the law of armed conflict. So, of course, there's also discussion as to whether Hamas has complied, but I think we, we generally tend to agree on the answer to that. So, in other words, there's a lively discussion, there's a lively debate which invokes the language of IHL. And I think, faced with that, not to then look at the law and not to try to be as precise as we can is, is a grave mistake. Right. Maybe we can turn to some of those legal issues. But before we get to IHL, which I think in, in some ways is the most complex in, in this context, uh, I thought we should start to say a little bit about the USAD Balam issues, right? So the, the legal regime that governs uh, when force can be used for the, the students out there. Uh, the refrain is constantly made that Israel has a right of self-defense, which suggests that Israel is indeed invoking the right of self-defense, which therefore implicates USAD Balam principles necessity, proportionality, and we could talk about whether and to what extent Israel is complying with principles of uh, necessity and proportionality. But as Iliev Lieblik and others on Twitter have pointed out that in the aftermath of the 2014 conflict in Gaza, in the report put out by the Israeli government, Israel did not actually take the position that it was exercising the right of self-defense. It did as an alternative argument, but uh, its primary argument was that this was an ongoing international armed conflict and that therefore uh, it was not an exercise of self-defense. And indeed that the principles of necessity and proportionality, you said Balan principles, did not obtain and did not apply to its actions. So there's actually quite a lot to talk about in terms of you said Balan as it applies to the current conflict, which hasn't really been addressed as much in the blogosphere or in the public discourse. So, Adil, maybe you can lead us off in the discussion of how should we think about this in USAID Balam terms? In my view, Israel is primarily invoking self-defense not as a legal claim, but as a claim to political or moral legitimacy for its actions. So it's partly because, as you said, after the 2014 fighting, Israel took the position that once an armed conflict begins, the USAD Bellum essentially drops out and only the law of armed conflict regulates what happens thereafter. There are two other reasons to think that this is Israel's position. In modern international law, the right of self-defense is a justification for the use of force against another state. Israel does not recognize Palestine as a state. On May um, 15th, I believe, Israel did uh, submit a letter to the Security Council that did mention self-defense at the very end, but as I read it, it was not a report that Israel had exercised its right of self-defense under the charter. So my impression is that this remains Israel's position. Now, in my view, this position has no basis in law and, and just doesn't really make any sense, but it may explain some of Israel's recent conduct. So for example, uh, it seems that Israel refused to enter into ceasefire negotiations for almost a week, and this may reflect the idea that Israel does not think that it is constrained by a necessity requirement, a requirement to seek non-forcible means to resolve its disputes. 
Israel also targeted a number of targets, banks, police headquarters, and offices that did not seem to have any direct relationship with the rocket fire, with the attack that Hamas was launching. Again, if you think that a Yusad Bellum proportionality requirement applies, those attacks look quite suspect. But if Israel takes a position that it's not constrained by proportionality, then those attacks become intelligible, even if they're not legally justifiable. And just to, again, say for, for the record that Israel's position is really, really hard to sustain precisely because it has the implication that as long as a state acts, uh, uses necessary and proportionate force in its initial response, thereafter, it can use unnecessary and disproportionate response. It can use force simply for punitive reasons to punish its adversary. It can refuse offers to uh, resolve the conflict without further loss of life. Uh, but that does seem to be Israel's position even now. Right. So I think that there are actually a number of issues that you've raised in, in that initial introduction. Right. So one could quibble or, or debate whether Israel is correct to say that this isn't an exercise of self-defense, that this is an ongoing armed conflict, and therefore the use of force two weeks ago did not constitute a new exercise of self-defense. It was just an ongoing armed conflict. But we could put that aside for a moment and just focus on really a debatable question of Yusad Balan itself, which is when one is exercising the right of self-defense, how long does the principle of necessity and proportionality last? As I seem to recall, Joram Dinstein, in his book on uh, war aggression and self-defense, takes the position that once all-out war has been engaged, that the principles of necessity and proportionality no longer apply, which would seem to be what Israel is relying on. Uh, but that's a very debatable position, as I understand it, within Yusad Balam. And Ilya Liblik posted something back in 2014, uh, analyzing the Israeli report, saying that just can't be right, that the principles of necessity and proportionality have to persist. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that narrow question in Yusad Balam? Aurel, maybe I can turn it to you. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so my view on this is that if you are invoking self-defense, and, and again, I say that as if because uh, I agree with Adil's reading of that Security Council letter that Israel sent, uh, I'm not sure Israel was actually explicitly relying on the right of self-defense. It asked for support for the recognition of its rights to self-defense in the abstract, but it hasn't actually explicitly said that it was exercising the right of self-defense. So assuming that uh, Israel or, or any other state invokes the right of self-defense, I don't think you can do that without the conditions which come attached to the exercise of that right. And those conditions do include necessity and proportionality. So I, I, I disagree with uh, Professor Dinstein on that point. Um, even all-out war, and I think what we saw in Gaza luckily was not an all-out war, but even in all-out war, necessity and proportionality do continue to apply. Um, if I may take us back to one, one sort of initial step before we get to necessity and proportionality, but it is linked to the question of proportionality, uh, because of course, when we talk about proportionality in Antbellum, we always have to keep in mind, what are we actually balancing? What are we comparing? And on the one side, we're obviously comparing the, the use of force, the amount and level of use of force by uh, the victim of an armed attack versus the actual armed attack if it's an ongoing attack. I think there's an interesting link here between IHL and, and the Yusad Bellum, insofar as Palestine, for example, has denied that Israel, as an occupying power, which is uh, the Palestinian position, has a right to actually invoke self-defense. So if you are an occupying power, self-defense is not available 
to you uh, in relation to the occupied territory. That got me thinking a little bit because, of course, the type of attacks that we are seeing from Hamas are probably beyond the bounds of what lawful self-defense, if Hamas were able to exercise lawful self-defense, would actually entail. So we know that there's no lawful self-defense against lawful self-defense, but if Hamas is carrying out unlawful acts of the use of force, then surely Israel must have the right to react to those. So in other words, if Hamas is using rocket fire indiscriminately against civilian population centers, surely, surely, international law cannot ask Israel or any other state in that kind of situation to sit idly by. So I'm a little bit more sympathetic to, to the self-defense argument, even on the assumption that Israel is still an occupation of Gaza. Of course, that's another kind of worms, right. whether, whether there actually is an occupation or isn't. So I guess one question that raises, though, is it may be that, sort of, as you say, intuitively, we expect that Israel has some right to defend itself against rocket fire. But the question is, is that the Yusad Balam right of self-defense, right? So the ICJ notoriously, infamously, famously decided in the Wall case, and, and I was reminded that James Crawford, of course, who just passed away this week, was indeed counsel to the Palestinians in that case. The court held that you can't have a right of self-defense against internal uh, actors and that, that Hamas were internal actors. So even if it is correct that Israel has a right to defend itself against non-state actors operating within uh, within the confines of the state or, or that are internal to it, does that trigger the operation of Yusad Balam and therefore the rights of necessity, proportionality, etc.? Yanina, I thought you had something to say on this. Yeah, I mean, if you permit me to sort of just take one step back, I feel like the law, the Yusad Bellum has has evolved or is in the process of evolving in a longer num number of axes that are really quite important for us. And yet it seems it's still pretty difficult to parse this particular conflict, even with these innovations, right? So in 2014, um, Dapo Akanda, I think, sort of very succinctly said, um, to say that Israel has a right to self-defense under Article 52 requires to either um, admit a Palestine as a state or to admit that the use ad bellum applies beyond interstate relations, right? And I think since then, both of these questions have moved, right? I think particularly on the notion of that, what does use ad bellum have to say for the use of force that isn't sort of the traditional state versus state, but non-state actors involved, states against non-state actors on other states' territories, um, I think there's been a lot of doctrine and a lot of scholarship to really try and adapt these terms to take care of a more complex reality in the 21st century. And the same is true for this understanding of proportionality ad bellum. I think Professor Dinstin's position was probably majority position 25 years ago, right? I think, but I think it's neither in scholarship nor in doctrine the case anymore. The International Law Association published a report in 2018 where it cites quite a lot of state practice saying quite unequivocally, proportionality at bellum is forward-looking, right? It requires a balancing between the aims of a defensive war and the overall harms to be expected. Now, that leaves a lot of questions unanswered, particularly how we weigh the aims of a defensive war, right, against the multiple harms that wars tend to cause. But it is a very, very clear move away from this initial position of proportionality at bellum is a one-time judgment, backward-looking, that's it, you're off the hook, right? So I think the law is moving and it's moving in directions to become more complex to other um, things to mention here is Ilya Lieblick's 2015 article on so-called internal use at Bellum, right? The question, what are our international law resources to understand 
the permissibility of resort to force within a state, right? And similarly, the Article 6 commentary on the ICCPR, which also brings human rights law in conversation with the law on the resort to force, right? And yet I find myself thinking that none of these progresses really help us make, like, come to a sort of, you know, sustainable consensus position on this particular conflict. And I think the reason is, unfortunately, um, the sort of, sorry for using Latin, but the sort of sui generis character of the um, political communities that are fighting here, right? Because they, the combination of separateness, this is clearly not one state using force against its own people on its own territory, like when Israel, I mean, now Israel, um, you know, military campaigns in Gaza. And at the same time, this is also clearly not simply two separate political communities. This war started not necessarily by Hamas firing rockets, right? But by Hamas firing rockets in response to political actions that Israel took, that most of the time in a truly international armed conflict, one belligerent can't take against another, like dispossessions and um, you know, denying permits for building, right? This just shows you that the intertwinement of these two political communities and nonetheless their separateness just really doesn't compute with the categories that we still have in international law of trying to parse whether something is international, non-international, non-state actor, whether state actor, et cetera. So I think the bottom line for me is that, you know, the idea of a use at bellum, pinpointing the at, right, who started here, right, right, is basically impossible. And that really means, even though we have to have this conversation, what is this conflict ultimately about, right? Law has to have resources to allow us to ask the big picture question. It is really not straightforward what the answer here is. No, I think that's that's exactly right. And even if we sort of untangle some of the complicating factors that you just presented us with and just sort of try to get back to well, what does this actually say about Yusad Bellum itself? If, if one accepts the Israeli position on its face that this is not a new exercise of the right of self-defense, but this is an ongoing armed conflict, it does raise the question of, okay, so assuming that the armed conflict began in, say, 2011 or in 2014, it said it was already ongoing, so it, we have to push it back, maybe 2006. But assuming for the sake of argument that Israel was the defending state at the inception of that armed conflict, but we accept that the Yusad Balam continues to obtain and apply going forward, is it still the case that Israel is the defending state? Does the principles of necessity and proportionality continue to apply to its actions in today? Or do we have to ask the question, well, hang on, yes, there's a continuing international armed conflict, but is Israel really still the defending state here? And do we apply necessity and proportionality to its actions today, given that it started defending against rocket fire back in 2011? Yes, I, th I think here we've got to be careful to, to keep the use ad bellum and the use in bellum considerations separate, because you can easily have a situation where the use in Bello is applicable over many, many, many years. I and mean, if you take occupation as an example, a belligerent occupation, obviously the law of armed conflict continues in place as long as that occupation um, right. continues itself. But that doesn't mean that there's actually any active fighting. I mean, almost by definition, if you have belligerent occupation, we are beyond or past an active phase in hostilities. So that doesn't mean, though, that from a use ad bellum perspective, the, the right of self-defense is still somehow relevant. I mean, if you don't have fighting, if you have no ongoing armed attack, then obviously self-defense itself becomes, if not irrelevant, but it's, uh, it's, it's simply not engaged. And it's at that point when you have a renewed round of active hostilities, which if they do amount to an armed attack under the use ad bellum, that the law of self-defense again becomes relevant. So I think we can, we can easily 
find situations where you have an ongoing armed conflict, uh, even active armed conflict, or in the form of a, of a, a belligerent occupation. And then the use ad bellum becomes triggered, ceases again to apply because of the necessity and proportionality requirement, and may become triggered again. And I think that's probably a better way of looking at, at what, we, what we're seeing in, uh, in, in Gaza. Right. And that sort of raises some of the issues that Tom Raus was looking at in Nagorno-Karabakh, right? And, and that, again, is one more reason for suggesting that the Israeli position that this is somehow not an exercise of self-defense, that this is some ongoing armed conflict that defense began 15 years ago, it just can't be right. So I, I basically agree with everything that Aurel just said. Um, and just to circle back on the general Yusuf Bellum point, I think one of the mistakes here is that the Yusuf Bellum doesn't attach to the resort to armed force, it applies to the use of armed force. So every use of armed force has to be justified for as long as force is used. If force lapses, and then is renewed, the new force has to be justified on grounds of self-defense. So I think that that's a, a conceptual mistake and an illegal mistake. It's really misunderstanding the new legal regime that we're operating under. Now, again, because Israel is not, doesn't regard Palestine as a state, it's not clear whether the general right of self-defense is applicable within Israel's own view. Now, you mentioned the wall advisory opinion. So there, the ICJ suggested that there is an alternative legal basis for the use of force, namely the law of occupation itself, which uh, allows and indeed requires the occupier to use force when strictly necessary for the safety primarily of the occupied population, but also for law and order more generally. And here, of course, the problem is that Israel also denies that it is an occupation of Gaza, so it can't claim that as a legal basis for its actions. There's a very interesting argument to be made that in some cases, human rights law itself could provide a legal basis for action because states have an affirmative duty to protect the human rights of, of their own population. But uh, Israel says that human rights law does not uh, extend to Gaza. So it's really not clear where Israel goes from here, where it can find a legal basis for its actions. I'll just end by noting somewhat controversially given the other panelists, that IHL cannot provide that legal basis. Because IHL applies symmetrically to both sides, it can never provide legal authority for the use of force. You always have to find it somewhere else. Under the use ad bellum, the law of occupation, human rights law, you have to find it somewhere else. You can't find it within IHL itself. So if the Israeli position that use ad bellum doesn't apply, only IHL does, leaves them without a legal leg to stand on, without a legal basis for their actions. It's a very difficult problem for the Israelis to sort out, so I will leave them to, to sort out their own problem. Well, I, I think I heard a gauntlet being flung there. So, <laughs> Aurel, Yanina, do you want Believe to me, we will not settle this on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> but somebody has to pick up the gauntlet. Which is probably a good thing that we're not trying to settle it on the podcast because uh, it would take us probably a long, a long time to try and do that. But I sort of agree, which may come as a surprise. I, I agree to the extent that the, uh, I believe IHL does provide authorities during an ongoing armed conflict, but more at the micro level, uh, insofar as at the macro level, the state will still have to comply with the use and bellum obligations. Again, takes us back to proportionality and necessity. But leaving that particular debate to, to one side, what I would add from the point of view of the ongoing nature or not ongoing nature of the armed conflict is we tend to sometimes overlook that Israel, of course, imposes a blockade on, on Gaza. 
and and does so essentially in the in the exercise of of a belligerent right. So I think from that perspective, now whether that is legally correct or not is a different question. But but from that perspective, I think again the idea that there's an ongoing armed conflict is not quite as fanciful, given that Israel keeps Gaza under a continued belligerent blockade. So I guess one question before we leave the Yusad bomb, and, and and we'll do so shortly. But uh, before we leave it, to the extent that Yusad bomb may apply, and I, mean, I, I think there's sort of a consensus here that we think Yusad bomb does apply, but if it does, and even if it doesn't, to the extent that some other regime applies to constrain or to provide limits on what uh, Israel can do, it strikes me that some of the assertions or statements from the Israeli government that it is degrading the capability or that its intention is to degrade the capability of Hamas or it is uh, restoring its deterrent, uh, you know, the most pejorative term that has not been recently used, but has been used in the past by cabinet members of the Israeli government of mowing the lawn. These statements of intent and of purpose and objective do not seem to be at all consistent with the principles of proportionality or of necessity in Yusad Balam terms. But it seems to me that it's hard to square those objectives or purposes with any of the possible limiting principles, no matter which regime you pick. Yeah, I think that's precisely right. Both for the purposes of use ad bellum, if we like, let's assume use ad bellum applies and actually Israel is right exercising some sort of right of self-defense. Then under the questions of proportionality or necessity, we have to know what this conflict is actually about. What is the end that we need to achieve here, right? What does it mean in the sort of narrow legal sense to repel the armed attack, right? And um, I can say a bit more about what I think that means, why we need to know this for the purposes of actually um, meaningfully applying IHL. But if we stay with use at Bellum for a minute, right, there needs to be some kind desired end state that can be actually articulated in military terms that is associated with this campaign overall for it even to come in the realm of possibly being proportionate and necessary under use at Bellum. The IDF um, publishes these infographics, right, where it says, like, we've um, destroyed that many kilometers of tunnels, that many rocket launchers. And on some level, you know, you could, you know, want, you could look at this and sort of say, like, well, there is a sort of overall generic military end state. They, you know, want to degrade um, Hamas capability by that amount. But this stands in very, very stark tensions with the representations that some of which you have just mentioned that Israel, um, Israeli officials from the prime minister to the IDF spokesperson have made, right? Which is the idea that there's not even a belief in the idea that this is in some sense a, a meaningfully effective way of resolving the conflict, you know, reducing the threat level um, that Israel is facing from Hamas. In this particular conflict, I also find it striking that actually the IDF suggests that 90% of um, rockets from Hamas are intercepted by Iron Dome, and more than 10% of rockets fall on, on Gazan territory. Right? So the question really is, to what extent does any of the use of force by Israel on the territory of Gaza right, have any kind of meaningful connection with reducing the threat that Israel um, undoubtedly faces from Hamas? And doesn't that to some extent take off the table the notion of necessity at bellum for this campaign, right? If the threat that Israel undoubtedly faces is actually taken care of by other means, right? And in addition, Israel doesn't articulate a desired military end state anymore for these campaigns, right? To the extent, um, at least not plausibly so, or not unequivocally with one voice, then the question really to me is, how can we come um, to, to the position that this is necessary 
never mind proportionate at the ad bellum level. Well, yeah, uh, can I just push back a little bit, uh, offer a slightly different perspective on this? I think we have to be careful not to conflate a political end state, a peaceful settlement with, with a military goal. And I think necessity and proportionality requires Israel to focus on the military goals. In other words, what can be done and what is necessary to do in order to stop the ongoing armed attacks. And I, I fail to see how not degrading Hamas's capabilities, in other words, going after the launchers, going after the infrastructure, going after the personnel, is not necessary and proportionate to achieving that particular aim of stopping the, the ongoing attacks. So in a way, to, to say, well, this is never really going to solve the conflict, the, the broader conflict, I think is is maybe I misunderstood, but but that seems to me to to be asking the wrong question. And, and in a way, it wouldn't be proportionate, and it wouldn't be necessary for Israel to rely on self defense to to actually try to resolve the underlying political conflict. I, just to clarify, yes, we did misunderstand each other, right? My point is precisely to say that um, for the purposes of Atbelum necessity and proportionality, we need an um, end state that is articulated in military terms, right? That it needs to be meaningful at that level, right? But we need to have an understanding of this is what we're trying to achieve in military terms in order to repel the armed attack, right? This is for me the, the goal or the horizon towards which necessity and proportionality at the ad bellum level are applied. And I think just learning from the last three, maybe four campaigns that Israel has conducted in Gaza and based on its own representations of what it tries to achieve and what it has achieved, right? After 2014, there was... Um, I think, you know, the admission that Hamas had left more than 3,500 rockets, right? It was just at that moment choosing not to launch them, right? So this is precisely my point, that it isn't to me clear that um, these campaigns are either intended to or effective in actually achieving a military end state that meaningfully responds to the ongoing yeah, flaring up and down threat of, um, that Hamas poses to Israel. Adil, do you want to get in on this? Not on this point in particular, but maybe before we leave the ad bellum, just to say we've been discussing uh, the ad bellum basically from the perspective of, of Israel and, and self-defense. I just thought it worth pausing for a second and just reminding everyone that there is another way of thinking about the ad bellum issues. So if Palestine is a state, then Israel is engaged in ongoing armed aggression against Palestine through the occupation of East Jerusalem and the West Bank as well as the blockade of Gaza. Maybe some of that could be justified on defensive grounds, but much of it can't be. Much of it is for the purposes of annexation and settlement. If Palestine is not a state, uh, then it would seem that Israel is engaged in forcible action, which deprives the Palestinian people of their right of, of self-determination and freedom and independence. Uh, that language is from the Declaration on Friendly Relations. And again, maybe some of what Israel is doing could be legally justified. As Orel said, if rockets are, are incoming on uh, Israeli civilian areas, it seems like there might be some legal basis for, for, for stopping that. But this would be a kind of interstitial legal justification, a legal justification for particular uses of force by Israel in a broader context in which most of the force that Israel is using is unlawful. Uh, either as against Palestine as a state or against the Palestinian people struggling for self-determination. Okay, well, we have indeed spent quite a bit of time on the Yusad Balaam, so maybe it's time to go down the rabbit hole of IHL, which is that much more technical and about which I think there is some disagreement as we, we sort of foreshadowed um, on this question of whether IHL provides some authority to use force in some context. 
so there's so much to talk about here, but I thought that perhaps we could begin uh, or find an entry point in the articles written by Adil and Orel on the military strike against the Al Jala Tower. Both of you use that sort of as a lens through which to examine sort of broader IHL issues, issues that relate to a number of the different strikes. And one of the key issues in your analysis of the, the strike on the Ajala Tower was, can it be right that a large, tall building can become in its entirety a military objective merely by virtue of Hamas using a few apartments or a couple of floors of the building? So, Aurel, why don't you lead us off? You took us down the rabbit hole to begin with in writing. You can take us down now, and we'll use this as our entry point into the IHL issues. Okay, so let's let's go down that rabbit hole. To, to my mind, this question of whether the, uh, the Al Jalalak Tower or, or any other high-rise building uh, constitutes a military objective in its entirety, or whether just a particular part of that structure constitutes the military objective is, is really a status question. It's a preliminary question. So before we get to things like proportionality, precautions, we need to know what our target is, what the lawful target in question actually is. Picture two scenarios. In the first scenario, imagine a compound which consists of a number of different buildings. You have a main building, you have a number of outbuildings, and they're surrounded by, by a wall. In that case, I think it makes sense to treat the different buildings as separate. They're functionally linked, but structurally, they are separate, identifiable, distinct objects. Picture a different scenario. Look at a bridge. And if you're looking at a bridge, what you see is a pier or a number of piers, and on, on top of them, there's a deck. That's very different from the compound scenario, because here we, we're looking at an object. We can identify distinct parts or elements of that object, deck appears. They're functionally linked, but they're also physically integral to one another. I cannot take out the pier without destroying or, or rendering the, that particular bridge useless. So my point in that post was to say that if you're looking at the relationship between a flat or a number of flats and a high-rise building, it is much closer in nature to the example of a bridge than the example of a compound for the simple reason that although a flat is functionally self-contained, it is physically an integral part of the entire structure. So to my mind, when we're asking the question, what is the object? We cannot really distinguish the flat as a distinct physical object from the broader whole infrastructure, the, the structure of the building itself. So to my mind, when we're looking at that status question, we, we're ultimately asking the question, is the tower as such a military objective or is it not a military objective? I think this is where, at this point, there's been partly some disagreement about whether that's the right lens to, to, to look at this particular problem and, and, and the right way of applying the concept of a military objective. But I think there's also been a little bit of misunderstanding here. Because I think for most people, most people will probably feel quite uncomfortable with the idea that you can identify a certain part of a high-rise building being used for military purposes, and that, that would somehow render the entire structure, the entire high-rise building, into a military objective. I mean, it just seems to be disproportionate, right? It seems to be over the top. One way of trying to deal with that is to bring in some kind of proportionality analysis and say, well, maybe the entire building is a military objective, but we have to keep in mind that not the entire building is used for military purposes. So we have to weigh the military use and utility of the building versus 
its residual civilian function. That is superficially attractive, but I don't think this has much basis or much of an anchor in the law itself. This is not proportionality, because if you start from the premise that you are looking at a military objective as such, you're not weighing distinct objects. You're not weighing the damage done to distinct objects, which is what proportionality asks you to do. What you're doing is you're weighing the military utility versus the civilian utility or function. And that is just simply not what the proportionality rule requires. I think a better approach is to just simply apply proportionality and precautions as they are, as they feature in additional protocol one. What does that mean? Well, if you look at the tower, clearly any objects within that tower which are not an integral part of the building and which are not being used by Hamas are civilian in character. In other words, flat one, flat two, flat three, not being used by Hamas, the bed, the shelf, the TV, the cell phone, the laptop in there, all of those things are civilian objects. So in other words, as, the, as an attacker, I need to quantify the military advantage that I seek to achieve by attacking the tower versus the harm that I'm likely to cause to all these various civilian objects within the entire structure. Not only do I have to do that, but also the precautionary duty kicks in. And, and, and to me, that is really, really important and was a little bit lost in some of the debate because the precautionary duty now requires the attacker to avoid or minimize any harm to those civilian objects. So, in other words, even if the entire tower is a military objective, and in principle, the entire tower could be destroyed, there's still a proportionality analysis that has to be made. So the example that, well, if Hamas left a single laptop in the, in the uh, tower, well, that means we can take the entire down, nonsense. But it's very, very unlikely, unless it's a really important laptop, but it's very, very unlikely that a single laptop uh, would outweigh the, uh, the, the harm and the value of all these other civilian objects which are in there. So the proportionality analysis still has to be made. And again, the attacking party has to comply with its precautionary duty to take all feasible measures to avoid actually damaging these, uh, these other civilian objects. So I think the law uh, is capable of dealing with this issue. And, and again, I would, I would simply come back and ask the question, if you look at the example of the bridge, and if you agree that a high-rise structure is similar in nature to the example of a bridge, why would you treat Pier 1, Pier 2, and the deck as you know, civilian objects? They're, they're not. They're simply integral parts of the same structure, and that's the object that we're talking about. Okay. So, and just before I turn to you, Adil, it's perhaps useful just to zoom out for the students of the, the, the non-sort of IHL nerds listening to this to point out that we're talking about, at the outset, the principle of distinction and the question of whether this is a civilian object or it's a military objective and how do we determine what is a military objective? And, and of course, the point you've been making is that by virtue of Hamas using some part of the building, that turns the entire building into a military objective. But then the question is, to what extent does the principle of proportionality then kick in? Does it apply to some aspects of the building? Uh, so Adil, you took a somewhat different view on this in your uh, blog post. Over to you. Oh, one other, just for the non-Brits out there, a flat is an apartment, just in case you were wondering. Absolutely. Um, so before I discuss sort of my own take on the Algella strike, just a few things about Aurel's remarks. So I, I disagree with, with Aurel about the 
issue about whether the entire apartment building becomes a military objective. But I just want to draw out a few very important things, um, some of which you mentioned and some of which are in his essay, which some listeners may not have read. So first, of course, if there are any people left in the building, uh, harm to them must be avoided and would uh, could render an attack disproportionate. Orel didn't mention that because the Algella Tower was empty when it was destroyed, but just for clarification. Second, Orel makes the important point that uh, the reverberating effects of an attack uh, can also render it disproportionate. So if you render a dozen families homeless in a context in which other homes and apartments are being destroyed, tens of thousands of people are crowding into UN schools during a COVID pandemic, all of that could render an attack disproportionate. And then one more thing on precautions. There's one more uh, precautionary rule, it's the target selection rule. So this is the idea that if you can get a similar military advantage from attacking target A or target B, but one would pose much greater risk to civilians, you should attack the other one. So even if the entire building was um, a military objective. If there's particular equipment or personnel inside, those would also be military objectives. And if you could target them rather than the whole building and harm fewer civilians and civilian objects, you would have to select those smaller targets rather than the larger target. And all of that is important because, again, although this issue of distinction is the whole building a military objective is, of course, very important. It is also very important to emphasize that there are other legal constraints here. Right? Now, in my uh, essay on the Algella Tower, I, I actually argue that we don't have to resolve this issue to understand the legality of the attack on Algella Tower, because at the time the Algella Tower was destroyed, uh, it was not a military objective. Hamas had left. They were not using the tower at that time. They'd already evacuated. They took much of their equipment or some of their equipment with them. Maybe they left some behind. But because they were not using the tower, the tower would not be a, a military objective by virtue of its use. Most states and scholars think um, a normally civilian object can become a military objective if the adversary intends to use it in the future. So it's possible that if Hamas intended to go back in and use it in the future, that could turn it into a military objective. That seems very unlikely because the IDF had just told them, we know what you're doing, we know what you're using this tower for, we are prepared to destroy it. It's very unlikely that they would just go back in and resume ongoing operations. They'd be making themselves into sitting ducks for a further attack. Now, one of the reasons why the intent to use a normally civilian object in the future is a worrisome ground for loss of civilian protection is that it's largely based on speculation. Unless you have direct evidence of that intention, it opens up the door for error and abuse. And that is why the rule of doubt is so important in this context. That if you are in doubt about the intention of the adversary to use a normally civilian object in the future for military purposes, you should refrain from attacking that object. You should presume that it will remain civilian unless it is clear that it will become a military objective in the future. So that's my view about the tower. Uh, if military equipment was left inside, then the, we have to ask two further questions. So first, if there was equipment left inside, the equipment would remain a military objective and could be directly targeted. The IDF didn't do that. They targeted the building. They cut out its base and collapsed it. 
And so technically, right, this does not actually raise the question of proportionality because they weren't targeting the equipment. But it is worth emphasizing that if the tower is not was not a military objective, then the whole value of the tower to the civilians who lived there, who had their offices there and so on, would all weigh against the proportionality of destroying the equipment. And finally, it is worth noting that the IDF, as far as I know, even now has not said that the equipment was so valuable. First of all, it's not totally clear what equipment was left behind, but they have still not argued that whatever equipment was left behind was sufficiently valuable to justify the destruction of all those homes and offices. Their argument is the homes and offices don't count. They weren't civilian objects anymore. We don't need to justify destroying them. Um, so they're really leaning hard on this classification argument. But again, it doesn't work because once the building is no longer a military objective by its use, once there's grave doubt about its future use, it's no longer a military objective. So the full value of the building to the civilians who live and work there weighs against the value of the equipment if proportionality was even alive issue in the case. So that was my own uh, analysis. And it actually doesn't depend on uh, resolving the issue that Orel focused on, even though I actually disagree with him on it. <laughs> Yanina, did you want to get in? I mean, I would really like for us to resolve this initial issue, right? The question of how to delineate a military objective within a larger civilian objective, or to what extent can a military objective located in an object that is used for civilian purposes sort of infect the whole object and turn it into a military objective? Because I think this is an ongoing question in urban warfare, right? So it'll come up again. And even though I largely agree with Adil's analysis and the notion that illegality here is overdetermined, so we may not have to come, you know, agree on this position to come to the conclusion that the strike was ill-conceived and, and therefore probably illegal. I think it is worth um, coming back to this initial question, right? The status question, as Aurel put it. So I think we all agree that if you know objects or structures have a civilian and a military function. And they become, you know, some part of them at least becomes prima facie a military objective under Article 52. But we also probably all agree that in the proportionality calculus, the residual civilian use and function need to be weighed. I think so far we are all on the same page, right? So the question really is, and it really matters, how to delineate the military objective within a structure, whether that be a bridge or an apartment building that also has importance to the civilian population. And I happen to think that an apartment building isn't like a bridge, right? It isn't. And the reason is that the way in which the bridge is used, both militarily and in a civilian way, they both use them in the same way. So in some way, you cannot take away the military function without also um, neutralizing the civilian function. If you leave the civilian function alive, in some way, you have probably failed to neutralize the effective contribution of the bridge to military action. But that isn't true in the case of the apartment building, right? And the IDF has in the past shown itself capable of um, neutralizing or destroying not just individual apartments in, in block, tower blocks, but individual rooms in houses, right? I'm loath to leave um, status questions and legal interpretations um, open to, the, like flexible to the capacity of the attacker. That is quite problematic, right? But I think as a matter of principle, I think in our legal interpretations, it is important to say that if it is possible in principle, right, before the capabilities of the attacker come in, to separate the, the civilian function from the military function in a way that is in principle possible to neutralize, 
the effective contribution that a part of a structure makes to military action and therefore to take you know to achieve the military advantage desired without completely undermining the civilian function then it is simply the spirit of IHL that has left its imprint in various rules around necessity and precautions right and minimization that this has to happen that the military objective has to be delineated as narrowly as restrictively as possible with a view to keeping as much of the civilian function alive to me this isn't a question of proportionality to me this is a question of applying article 522 in the spirit of IHL right which itself is a balancing purpose right that yes, you need to be able to achieve your military advantage and neutralize the effective contribution to military action of this object, but without ever in the process, you know, um, leaving, uh, you know, the civilian population worth off if this is not even necessary, right? And in this case, it wasn't necessary. And I think quite a lot is at stake here because as Adil said, the attack was at the base of the tower, right? If this is not, if not the whole tower is the military objective, then that angle of the attack alone makes this attack illegal, right? Whereas if we give away here and say like, fine, you know, the, the laptop infected the room and the room infected the apartment and the apartment made the whole tower block a military advantage, right? First there's, you know, a sort of reductio ad absurdum, what, what else can get infected, right? But in the first instance, you let the attacker off the hook to actually attack the object that they seek to neutralize and to launch a much, much, much bigger attack, right? Which then makes the proportionality question more acute. But I don't think this is a matter of proportionality. I think it is a matter of status. Or out. Can I first uh, reply to or come back on, uh, to the points that Janina made? I think we need to look at the text of the law and distinguish it from policy. As, as a matter of policy, I agree wholeheartedly with the idea that if it is possible to separate a civilian residual function, then not targeting and protecting that civilian function is the right thing to do. Right in the sense of policy, but also right in, in terms of the spirit of IHL. But if you look at the, the actual wording of the rules, so if you take a more technical positivist view on that, I just don't see how the rules protect functionality. The words refer to objects. Article 52.2 talks about objects. Proportionality applies to objects and of course also to persons. There's just simply nothing in there which speaks to functionality. So as a matter of the rules themselves, putting aside the spirit of the law, I just don't see how that is a... How, how we can arrive at a binding legal obligation for the attacker to start weighing the functionality of, uh, of an object. I get to a very similar result, however, through precautions. So as, as long as within that object, you have other protected civilian objects, or perhaps not civilian objects, but you have other uh, specially protected objects or persons, say wounded or sick, then not only again does proportionality kick in, but also precautions kicks in. So there is not only a weighing that needs to be go, going on, but also the attacker will have to try to avoid destroying or harming those other protected objects and persons, which means exactly that destroying the entire structure is not permissible unless that's the only way of achieving the military advantage. So in, in our case, if Israel had a choice and it was feasible to target only the apartment, then the precautionary duty imposed on Israel required it to do exactly that and not to drop the entire powers. Now, we don't know whether that was feasible or it wasn't feasible, but I think precautions gets us to exactly the same outcome and on the basis of the actual text of, of the rules. Again, I completely agree that we can get to, um, to, to weighing functionality on the basis of the spirit of the law, but I'm, I tend to be a little more hesitant about relying on the spirit of the law because 
IHL, although the humanitarian impulse and imperative is, is clearly at the forefront, it's not the only imperative and it's not the only value that IHL uh, seeks to protect and, and to achieve. So I think we have to be a little bit hesitant basing these arguments on, on purely humanitarian considerations and the spirit of the rules. Um, I, I want to let Adil talk because I've talked a lot. I just wanted to clarify that nothing much hinges on the term functionality here, right? At, at least as far as functionality for the IDF is concerned, you could simply replace it with contribution to military action. And that is clearly what the text of the law says. Yeah, so, so I think part of my disagreement with Orel is looking at the term object outside of its context. So first, the context of the definition of a military objective uh, is that military objectives uh, shall be limited to objects satisfying the following functional criteria. It's preceded by what I would characterize as a, a prohibition, that attacks shall be strictly limited to military objectives. So these are textual clues that these are meant to be limited uh, criteria for loss of civilian protection. This is further confirmed because the broader context is a prohibition on attacks against civilian objects. And in that context, the definition of a military objective is an exception to the prohibition, which in generally we construe narrowly. It's followed by the rule of doubt that tells us that when there is factual doubt about whether an object satisfies the criteria of being a military objective, we should presume that it is not, that it remains a civilian object. This at least suggests that where there is legal doubt about whether the criteria apply, we should presume that it does not. And finally, on this point about functionality, in Article 54, uh, we learned that objects can be all kinds of things. They can be plants, like crops, they can be animals, like livestock, and they can be agricultural areas for the production of foodstuff. Now, if you think about an, an agricultural area, it is going to be physically continuous with the land surrounding it. There'll be farmland, there'll be residential land, commercial land, industrial land. So it's, it's all just the surface of the earth, unless we're on the island or something. What marks the boundaries of the area is its function. This is an agricultural area for the production of foodstuffs, where the land is used for that function, we treat that as one object. Where land has a different function, we treat it as a separate object. So in my view, it is perfectly possible within uh, the context of Protocol 1 to say that an apartment is a distinct object. First, because it is structurally separate uh, from the rest of the building to an extent. There is typically one front door which allows people to enter and exit. The rest of it is your home, right? For you and your family separate from the rest of the building. And it serves a distinct, fun a distinct function to be your home, a place where you raise your children, make dinner, lay your head down at night, and it is separate from the function of other parts of the building. In my view, there's nothing in the text of Protocol 1 as a whole that precludes that. And when you add to that both the purposive considerations that Yanina identified, the purpose being the protection of civilians, as well as other relevant rules of international law, and here I'll stop, there is a human right to adequate housing, which entails, among other things, a prohibition on the arbitrary destruction of people's homes. So if we interpret uh, Protocol 1 to identify civilian apartments as civilian objects, 
we align IHL with human rights law. If we don't, if we deny protection under IHL to civilian apartments, we either set up a conflict between IHL and human rights law, which we should seek to avoid, or we end up in a situation where human rights law prohibits what IHL uh, on this interpretation does not. Um, so I will close with, uh, with that. Okay. So we still haven't really unpacked and sort of gorged on the issue of proportionality. Uh, and I think that there's a lot to be said there. I think Brian Cox had a, a piece in Just Security, which is at odds with uh, Orel's piece in Articles of War on the extent to which or how one should consider the other flats, as you put it. To what extent are other parts of the building civilian objects that have to be considered in the analysis of collateral damage for purposes of proportionality. So perhaps you want to comment on that before we turn back to sort of broader issues. Yes, thank you, Craig, for that. Um, there's probably a misunderstanding uh, between between Brian Cox and, and, and my piece. And so far as I don't think anyone, I certainly haven't suggested this, but I don't think the IDF or anyone else has suggested that civilian objects which are within the collateral damage zone or the blast radius of a particular strike should not count for proportionality purposes. Obviously, they do have to count for proportionality purposes. I mean, that's the entire point of the proportionality rule, that any incidental damage uh, which objects which are uh, near to a lawful military objective suffer must be included uh, in the proportionality analysis, and of course, not just objects, but also persons. So I think um, there there really isn't any disagreement on that point. What what's perhaps the disagreement comes back to is what is the object to begin with, and whether in the case of of objects which are complex and consist of multiple parts, like a high rise building, whether we consider the entire object to be the military target, the, the lawful target, or not. But there is I don't think there's any any disagreement um, about the 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 idea and, and, and the fact of law, if you will that if you have a military objective and there are distinct civilian objects within the perimeter of that military objective, that those civilian objects retain their protective character. So for example, if I drive onto a military base in my civilian car and I'm not DPHing, so I'm not directly participating in hostilities, I remain a civilian even though I'm on a military base and my car, fingers crossed, also remains a civilian object. I don't think there's any disagreement on that. So is there Perhaps some disagreement, at least, as to, as you say, what constitutes the civilian object. So perhaps I myself misunderstood, but I took you to be suggesting that the, the TV, the furniture, and so forth within the, the flats in the building were civilian objects and would have to be considered for purposes of collateral damage analysis. But the other apartments, because they were integral to the building, were therefore somehow became part of the military objective, and those would not be part of it analysis. And I thought that Brian Cox was saying, no, even those have to be considered as, as part of the collateral damage uh, analysis. So my, my position is, as you have set it out. So I, I, I believe, again, looking at the object and asking what constitutes the object, uh, if you're looking at separate apartments, separate flats, the, the walls, the ceilings, the floors, all of this is part of a single structure of a single entity, a single object, which is the entire apartment block, the entire high-rise building. Uh, I understood Brian's piece to to suggest or to imply that some have suggested that also items 
within the structure, so the TV, the bed, the furniture, etc., um, should not be included within the proportionality calculation. They absolutely have to be included in the proportionality calculation. Uh, so somewhere along there, there, there may have been a misunderstanding, but I think uh, the bottom line is we agree that objects which are not part, an integral part of the structure and which are civilian in nature or otherwise protected under the law of armed conflict, they do retain their protected status and they do insofar as they are civilian objects or persons need to be factored into the proportionality calculation. Right. And and just to restate the obvious that Adil pointed out earlier, if there were people in the building, they, of course, would have to be considered. Um, okay. Just one very quick one, Adil, though, but um, we, we didn't touch on this. I just was wondering on, on your thoughts. I mean, the reason, of course, why the military advantage in taking down the tower has diminished, you know, Hamas leaving, they're taking yeah. their laptops or whatever, is, is the advance warning. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, it's sort of the sort of fairly orthodox position that you don't have to give an advance warning if your military advantage diminishes. So that, that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Not being naive about it, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe the Israelis thought, hang on a minute, you know, we have to tell these people to get out, partly because of, you know, the optics of it, but also a strike then from Porsche's perspective, it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. nonetheless interesting that they, they gave the warning and undercut their own military advantage, perhaps even to the point where it's no longer a military objective. So I, I agree with that. So question one is, when the notification was given, while all the civilians were inside the building, would it have been disproportionate to strike? I think seems really, really hard to justify. My suspicion is that the Israelis understood that themselves, and it wasn't just about optics. They also, and that they must have known that, of course, the Hamas fighters or members would leave too and take whatever they could with them, so that this was all part of their calculation. I uh, disagree that any loss of military advantage means you don't have to give an advance warning. I disagree with that. I think permitted, right, unless the circumstance does not permit. It's just another way of talking about feasibility. It's the same military humanitarian uh, balance. If you lose a bit of advantage, but all the civilians live, of course, you have to give the warning. But the other thing that I, I do want to kind of keep coming back to is that, yes, the military advantage of destroying the tower diminished. But it's also because they got a lot of advantage just from the notification, which is that Hamas had to leave, they had to interrupt their operations, maybe they couldn't resume them at all because the equipment is now split or whatever. So they got a lot of advantage from the evacuation of the, of the building. And so I just want to kind of emphasize, like the IDF got a lot. They should have, accept, they should have taken it. They should have said, okay, we've gotten something from all of this. Let's not blow up the building for whatever residual advantage we might get. Then I can I can see people. Sorry to, to cut in, but yeah, I, yeah, then sure. I can see people so turning around and saying, "Well, but that's terrorizing the civilian population." So uh, you know, if you basically give a fake advance warning that you're going to attack, you know, all these people got to clear out and all the rest of it, it's that's terrorizing the civilian population. So, so there, there's a there, so there's a fair and an unfair version of that. I think the fair version. I mean, obviously, I think it's fair because it's my view, but I, I do think that. If, you, if, an, if it would be disproportionate to carry out an attack and then you tell the civilian population, run or we'll kill you, that is a threat. That is a threat. So first you have to say, okay, it would be proportionate for us to strike, but please leave because we don't, obviously don't, don't want to kill you. That, that's what a, a real warning is. So I, I, I agree there are some things to untangle around warnings, threats, notifications, et cetera. Is there a catch-22 or... Are we creating perverse incentives? I don't, I don't think so, but I, I'm, I'm very alive to that concern. I thought about it before I wrote my post. Okay, am I, am I leading to a weird result? No, I think, 
think this all makes sense. Okay. An issue that has been raised a number of times in our conversation, which I think really is a complicated one that deserves some attention, is this issue of evidence and disclosure obligations, right? And so we keep saying, well, we don't know whether it was feasible. We don't know uh, what the exact purpose or use was. The IDF does. They say it was necessary and proportionate and just trust us. We have the intel. The question is, or one question is, to what extent is there some obligation on the belligerent who is claiming that some strike is lawful uh, to disclose some of the evidence that supports that claim? So there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter about this question. Uh, I wanted to put it to, to all of you. What, what are your thoughts on this? Yanina, maybe we can start with you. I would like to sort of flip the question a little bit around because I think Aurel and Adil probably have um, more to say on the sort of obligations towards transparency and reporting. But what I would like to say is that IHL is a very powerful um, source of legitimacy. And for that power to unfold, it is in the interests of belligerents to not just make empty legal claims, but to make legal claims that a reasonable observer would accept. Right. And in order for that to be the case, for, for the IDF and Israel that is particularly aspiring to the mantle of IHL, like let's be honest, Hamas isn't really. It occasionally makes spurious claims to that effect, but on some level it is beyond the possibility that anyone would look at that and say like, well, Hamas might, may or may not be acting legally. This is simply not in the cards, right? So Israel on some level has, um, on the IDF in particular, in some level has the chance here to, to really have an asymmetrical advantage, right? The, the victory of legality, the mantle of legitimacy that, that IHL can bestow. And in some ways, it's foregoing that, uh, that advantage by not actually backing up its legal claims. But by leaving these legal claims out there, you know, and for, by expecting people to simply trust them. And I think this conflict is too fraught, it's too politicized, and there have been too many instances in which um, the IDF has pushed the boundaries of law acted illegally for anyone, for the reasonable observer, the average reasonable observer, to simply accept any claim at face value. With that in mind, I think from a political, from a moral, and from a self-interested prudential perspective, the IDF should disclose this information that is necessary for observers from the outside to make, you know, in legally legal claims about the actions that it is committing. Um, I think we sometimes overstate our inability to make legal judgments from afar, right? Um, and it's never really entirely possible to show someone's intention. It's never really possible in a courtroom either, right? And of course, it's much harder on a battlefield. But it is also not true that we can never actually come to an informed legal conclusion simply as observers from afar, right? There is such a thing as easy cases, right? Even when it comes to the incredibly open-ended principle of proportionality. But the bottom line that I really would, you know, would like to stress much more than the question of any kind of obligation is that it is in the interest of the belligerent in this case, Israel, to disclose information that will allow us um, observers from the outside to make legal determinations. Aurel? I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I, I don't think there is a hard legal obligation on Israel to disclose the information, uh, certainly not under, under the law of armed conflict. But if Israel wants to benefit from that mantle of legality, as it, as it certainly uh, wants to, and as uh, Yanina mentioned, Israel goes to very long length to to make sure that it complies with the law of armed conflict. So if it wants to to make sure that uh, it benefits from the legitimacy that's um, complying with the law of armed conflict confer, uh, confers on it, it must consider very carefully publishing whatever evidence it can publish. 
What I would say, though, is perhaps we need to be a little bit more patient. Clearly, we can't expect any belligerent to do this in real time. Blogging is fairly easy. We can publish very quickly. But I think to expect a state to almost in real time to publish that sort of information, go through the motions and provide real useful information for outsiders to be able to evaluate how it has behaved on the battlefield is, is probably asking for too much. I would point back, you mentioned the report that Israel prepared in, uh, uh, in relation to the operations in 2014. Uh, Israel has published quite detailed information in the past. So maybe, maybe we just need to be a little bit more patient and, uh, and wait for the IDF to collate that information and, and, and put it out there. Right. And I should note, right, that this is an issue, while it's obviously brought to the fore by the recent conflict, I mean, this is an issue that doesn't just apply to, to Israel. I mean, we can look at the United States and the uh, Soleimani strike, and we're still waiting for any evidence to be forthcoming that supposedly justified the, the killing of uh, Soleimani. Uh, Anwar al-Awlaki, I mean, we could go back in time uh, to a number of high-profile instances where countries have made claims that this was legitimate, that this was lawful, trust us, uh, and yet have failed to provide any of the evidence. And I think it raises questions of where are, do the presumptions lie? And there seems to have been this sort of suggestion, at least in the Twitter sphere, that almost that we should trust that Israel, the, the IDF, made the right analysis of necessity, proportionality, whether this was a military objective. And that creates a presumption of legality, not as a matter of law, of course, but in the international community, within the political reality, within the public discourse, it potentially creates this presumption. And I'm not so sure that that presumption is right. But Adil, I think you have some thoughts on this. Sure. So I agree that we shouldn't have a presumption one way or the other. We should just try to assess the facts as best we can. Now, there is this question about, as legal scholars, how much information should we wait for before providing a legal analysis or drawing even preliminary legal conclusions? And I certainly respect the approach that I believe Orel takes, which is to basically say, look, I need a lot of information before drawing a firm conclusion. So my role here is to articulate the rules and maybe identify the factual questions that other people can then resolve journalists, investigators, the parties themselves. But I'm not going to draw conclusions based on, on partial information. I, I respect that approach. My own uh, approach is sort of a, a middle approach. So if based on IDF statements, on video recordings, on other publicly available information, I feel that I have enough to draw the particular conclusion that I'm going to draw then I won't you know, hesitate too much to, to do it. And there will be other issues where I might need much more information to draw, uh, even a tentative conclusion. And then I'll just remain silent until I feel that I, I have enough. But I don't think there's one approach here. And I think uh, different scholars have different views about their, their role in, in this um, uh, kind of legal ecosystem. And I think that one can make the argument that your approach in drawing some conclusions can, in fact, sort of create some pressure on the belligerents, if they're seeking legitimacy, as Yanina said, to be more forthcoming. If everybody stands back and says, well, we need to wait, uh, this creates space for belligerents to, to not be so forthcoming. But I think that we have exhausted most of the time I've asked of you. But before we 
close off, I thought it would be important maybe to crawl back out of the rabbit hole uh, that we have <laughs> dug ourselves into and get back to the meta issues. And so, Yanina, maybe we can turn to you to sort of give us some thoughts on, again, zooming back out to the big picture. How should we understand the relationship between all of this sort of really very technical analysis of the law and the bigger picture of legitimacy, the ethical aspects of, and the role of law itself in understanding the conflict. I feel like I might want to like sort of close on a note of optimism, optimism purely not about the conflict at all. There really, I don't think is any reason to be optimistic, but optimism about legal scholarship in this space, because I feel that in like sort of, you know, recent um, Twitter discussions notwithstanding, I think international law as a field is moving towards a space where Scholars very regularly, you know, draw on normative codes outside the law, both to contrast the law, but also sometimes to illuminate the law. And I think this is simply due to the realization that international law, like all law, exists in the social and political space. And that its, its function, its purpose, the imprint it leaves in reality, and this is why we study law, right, not out of disinterested curiosity in answers to technical legal questions, but because we want to know how law operates in the real world, right? What does it do? How does it operate for different agents? And I think with the understanding that you can only really grasp this if you understand the political, the moral, the social context of law, you know, with that background, I think legal scholarship has been moving in a direction where, you know, without compromising the integrity of the legal method, right, which is clear, which is important, and it's important to keep that separate. Legal exegesis can happen without um, empirical political considerations. But a lot of legal scholarship that has been impactful um, over the last couple of years has tied you know, the legal exegesis back into the moral, the political, and social context in which it operates. One you know, scholar who's a wonderful example of that is Eliaf Lieblich's work. I already mentioned his 2015 article on internal use at Bellum, right? Just really um, a fantastic example of someone doing the hard work of proper legal exegesis, uncompromised and unsullied, right? but then uses the insight that generates to tie it back, to ask moral and political questions. And to me, that is the future of legal scholarship. And I see quite a lot of that in, you know, in the last couple of years. So for, in that narrow sense, at least, I think there is, is room for optimism. We don't have to worry too much about the rabbit hole. The rabbit hole is a political construct as well, right? In the sense that it serves certain agents, certain purposes for us to focus only on certain questions. And I say, let's focus on these questions, do them justice as much as we can but then not lose sight of the rest. And I think this is entirely possible. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, but before I let any of you go, uh, I did want to ask each of you to recommend at least one reading that you think perhaps is particularly relevant to the conversation today and the, the Gaza conflict. So Adil, maybe I can begin with you. So now I feel like I may be uh stealing uh, Yanina's recommendation, but uh, speaking of our mutual friend, Ilya Lieblich, uh, he wrote a wonderful essay on just security on May 18th called Dispatch from Israel on Human Shields, What I Should Have Said to a Dad on the Playground. And it's really just a, a lovely essay. Uh, it's a very personal and, and human encounter of, you know, Ilyav is a, a father of young children. Uh, he was living in Tel Aviv and at a time where he's concerned about his own family's safety. He's thinking about the really horrendous toll that IDF operations are are inflicting on the people of Gaza. And it's just his own attempt to articulate his moral principles to another parent, not a lawyer, not a philosopher, but trying to, to communicate the humanity of the 
the people in Gaza, the children of Gaza, in a way that can be broadly understood. And I just thought it's a, it's a lovely essay in and of itself. And it's also a wonderful reminder that even when people are concerned about their own family safety, they can retain their moral compass and, and think about how to ensure that law and policy remains rooted in a broader moral culture. Right. Oh, it was a great essay. Uh, Oral? The piece that I would suggest uh, is, is a recent piece, a recent blog contribution by uh, A.R. Gross on just security. And uh, the reason I, I found that particularly illuminating is uh, A.R. takes a step back and, and looks precisely at this general dilemma of should we go down the rabbit holes? How, how can we reconcile, on the one hand, our, almost our urge to, to look at the technicalities as lawyers? with that broader moral concern and with the broader um, political issues that, that, uh, that provide the context for these technicalities. And I think he, he manages to look at these issues and not reconcile them, but certainly express the dilemma in, uh, in a very convincing way, ending on the note that ultimately going down the rabbit holes, looking at the technicalities of, of IHL is a double-edged sword. And I think that puts it exactly right. It's, it's double-edged sword in the sense that it cuts in both ways. It is a tool of accountability, but potentially is also something that then deflects or, or takes attention and space away from some of the broader issues. And, uh, and I agree, as long as we're careful to have those IHL conversations, to go down the rabbit holes, but then to reemerge on the other end, as long as we're careful in doing that, I think... Uh, it's probably a double-edged sword that is is worth wielding. But he puts it uh, he puts that dilemma extremely well in that blog post. Yeah, no, I, I just read that last night. Actually, I thought it was great. Thank, thank you, Yanina. Last word to you. I'm afraid Aurel and Adil have, in some way, you know, sort of mentioned the the obvious pieces that are really absolute must reads on this topic and on this question of how to balance legal with other thoughts. So maybe let me um sort of go back a little bit further into the sort of scholarly realm. Because we have struggled with use at bellum and, um, you know, basically, again, had sort of a nuanced con conclusion that it is moving, you know, a lot and in interesting ways, but not quite in a way that it is obvious now how to, you know, how to parse this conflict. I would recommend Amichai Cohen and Noam Lubel's um, International Law Studies article on strategic proportionality, which is a sort of delegiferenda attempt of, um, you know, show the, the direction of travel that we may want to go. And again, it's inspired by the question of saying like, here are questions militaries ask, here are questions that politically arise. Um, what would be a good way with the instrumentation that the law already has to address these questions? And again, these are two colleagues with deep ties um, to Israel. Amichai obviously lives there. Um, and you know, so the, the conflict um, and the questions that we have been discussing and the question that it arises very clearly inspire um, this article and the, the really great scholarly work. All right, excellent. Well, that that is a lot of food for thought, and you all have provided us with a great deal of food for thought. Thank you so much for making time on short notice, and uh, we'll have to, as I said, Yanina Orell, we'll have to have you back on the podcast soon to talk about your work, and at some point we'll have to get you back for a third round. So thank you all again. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is chipjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. And if you're enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, 
or mention it in your own blog post or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at jibjabpodcast for updates on the coming episodes. This podcast was produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, be well and stay safe.